I don't care if you have lung cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, head and neck cancer. As long as you have MSI high, you're far more likely to respond to immune checkpoint inhibition, like pembrolizumab, nivolumab, etc. This is applicable to any of you. You check to see if you're MSI high. Why? Because it doesn't matter where the cancer is from. That means you're likely to have a good response to just unveil, stop to stop signs, and have your immune system kill it. And that's huge. And of course, Pedro's going to be the one that does it. I'm so excited. Welcome to Target Cancer Podcast. My name is Dr. Sunday Janaja. I'm a hematologist, medical oncologist in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, also known as the Onc Doc on social media, where we try to like educate with a bunch of novel things and innovation, but make it very digestible. I'm extremely, extremely excited today to have somebody, and I don't say this often, and if you watch all my podcasts, I haven't said it, that I look up to in his presentation, the way he speaks. He is the man that when he takes the stage, I'm all ears, and I've literally learned a lot from him. I can call him a friend, hopefully, if he doesn't argue that, but more than anything, he is just an expert when it comes to GU, genitor urinary tumors and cancers and all the kind of novel stuff that we're looking into it. So with no further ado, I'm going to welcome Dr. Pedro Barada to join Target Cancer Podcast. Pedro, so good to have you. <laughs> Sanjay, that's an, am an amazing introduction. I I'm mean, embarrassed right now, but yes, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me here, and I'm, you know, it's a pleasure to join join you on this podcast. And by the way, congratulations, dude. You are all over the world, oh, which is awesome. Thank you. And I'm really sad because you were at Tulane previously, and we were, I would just literally do whatever I could to go to hear you speak. But now you're an associate professor at Case Western, and you're really kind of being the trailblazer when it comes to clinical GU research of oncology, right? So to learn more about these molecular things and targeted therapies and strategies, because it's a very multidisciplinary process, meaning like you got to involve like medonc, and is it before surgery, is it after surgery? Does it make sense to do anything after surgery? Is that kind of everything right. that you're trying to accomplish your study in the GU space? Right. No, that's perfect way. We try to make a case Western and university hospitals as like a shop for clinical trials so that patients out there, you know, can offer the standard of care, but when they're looking for novel therapies, the medicine of the future, you got to think of clinical trials. So we're trying to make us a place where people can come to get access to the, to the therapies of the future is really what it's all about. That's awesome. And we're trying to do that. That's awesome. Now, when it relates to GU, genitourinary, remember, for anyone listening, the way I think of it, and I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, and you can elaborate more, but the reason it's generally something that's, you know, when populations get older is because that system is responsible for excreting toxins. That's what urine, you know, does. It takes that stuff out, and that's why when people need dialysis or they have, you know, they're unable to basically excrete the urine and require dialysis, they basically get a little loopy, right, as if there's like some kind of toxins that are elevated. But in this process of having these toxins constantly over time, like over years, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but that exposure, right, to all of those kind of products over time can kind of invite cancers or mutational errors that can turn into cancer in that system, which is the kidneys and the bladder and the ureters down to the urethra. And things that kind of increase your mutational burden or the toxin needing clearance stuff like smoking, right? And I hear this a lot about like smoked meats and stuff. Some of the, 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 when you're charring stuff that, that, you know, excreting that in that process can also cause some kind of invitations for a little bit more of an insult to the, that cellular lining that can invite malignancies, mutations that then turn into malignancy. Is that somewhat accurate? No, it's a very cool way of presenting it. That's right. I mean, when we talk about GU, we really think about the anatomical, that the location, that what organs are involved. We think of the kidney, as you said, we, we think of bladder and ureter, 
and then we think of prostate, right? There's other rare uh, GU tumors, like adrenal cancers. Those are very rare. But in general, so we, that's what we're talking about. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very nice and novel way to present that, Sanjay. That's great. Yeah, I appreciate that. And so one of the things that I have to say, because it hurts me, it actually hurts me when this is the case, and that's when I see patients that have renal cell or bladder, and I look back in the labs, and I notice that they're a little what's called microcytic. MCV is starting to get a little small about a year ago, a year and a half ago. Maybe they're not anemic, but, it's, but the MCV is small. And the RDW, meaning the size variation in the red blood cells, start getting a little higher. And then maybe, in the worst case, they're actually anemic out of nowhere, but it's mild. I always try to stress on my social media, you have to check a urinalysis if you're worried about iron deficiency. Because one of the easiest and quickest ways and the earliest tip-offs is if you have red blood cells in your urine, and no, you do not have to see it. It's called microscopic. It looks normal. Like, it, you know, might have three, five, six, seven cells. But I can, you know, I'm, I can proudly say that I've caught many, like, kind of either in situ stuff, which means it hasn't been invasive in the bladder, or even renal lesions by getting a referral for iron deficiency. Hopefully, usually they've gotten the scope by the mouth as well as from the bottom, and then they say, I don't know what it is, maybe a malabsorption. you got to get the UA, and anyone listening, if you're a little anemic or you're iron deficient or those little metrics I told you, it's appropriate to get a urinalysis because if you do have blood, again, it's something to freak out about, but that's where you want to image and stuff because sometimes that's really all you got. If it's not pushing on something big enough in your back or in your bladder blocking right by the passageway for the ureter, you know, if it doesn't cause some kind of mass effect, you don't have a bunch of sensitive nerves in there. And one of the tip-offs can be this iron deficiency. So with that said, the first thing I want to talk about, which is your like most expert, you know, wizardry space, is renal cell carcinoma. And by that, by renal, I mean kidney. Obviously. So the way I understood it, and I thought this was really interesting, is because before, when we would think about cancers, you know, histopathologically, what does that mean? It means you take literally a piece of the cell, you throw it in a slide, you throw a bunch of stains on it, and you're like, ooh, I think it's breast or colon or whatever else. But in, in renal cell, it seems like it's not enough to say it's from the kidney. And there's generally, and you said this at, at Louisiana Oncology Society Conference last year or this year, it's not enough to be able to say it's from the renal cell, and they have two general profiles. They have things that are called angiogenic-like, which means maybe their way of growing and spreading is to recruit blood vessels. They love vessels. It's the fuel and the gas to make them, you know, be able to get juicier and bigger, and, and maybe that's the way that they're able to spread. So you have ones that are more angiogenic, for which you're going to talk to us about with TKIs. All those oral pills that you hear about, they basically affect the angiogenic, the, the, the genesis of angiovessels. And then you have... Um, a profile which is more of this kind of, I escaped the immune system profile. And so they're more, more immunogenic, meaning like, hey, your immune system probably was taking care of me or, or making sure I didn't escape and was killing me this whole time, but now, like, I've escaped it. But then if we can make things to be able to re-enable the immune system, that that's where their Achilles heel is. And so those are generally, are they stratified also by risk, as in low or high, depending on which one that they are, or is it a little bit more complicated? Yeah, so a few details that I can share, you know, in addition to that. So going back to the concept of cancer, kidney cancer, right? So when the cancer starts in the kidney, we call it renal cell carcinoma. So you can have cancer in the kidney that's not kidney cancer, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. So you can have cancer in the kidney that's not renal cell carcinoma, right? So, you know, for instance, it's not that common, but you can have other tumors. Let's just imagine breast cancer who left the breast, went to other places of the body like lung, you know, liver, and then it can go to the kidney, for example. You have a spot there or sarcoma. 
right? A tumor that's starting the soft tissue or bone and can go to the kidney. So not all cancers in the kidney are kidney right. cancers. Uh, and, but what we're talking, or we're gonna be talking today is really cancers that start in the kidney that's also known as RCC, renal cell carcinoma. And we divide them in kind of two groups. One is the clear cell subtype and the non-clear cell subtype, which the, the non-clear cell subtype includes a bunch of tumors, uh, rare forms of RCC, like papillary, chromophobe, translocation, you know, keep going. So, so that's that. And then when you look at the- um, And the majority you know, are like clear the, cell, right? The major, yeah, so about three out of four patients will present with clear cell RCC. Um, one out of four or so will present with non-clear cell. Of those, most patients will have papillary RCC or those are far less common. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that's important because a lot of us, you know, might get two or three kidney cancers a year. I mean, it's about the 11 common cancer in, in, in humans, which doesn't sound to be as common as, you know, you know, bladder or prostate or breast or colon or lung and other tumors, right? So what happens is it's really important that when we, we, when we find someone with kidney cancer, the person who is helping with managing the disease knows what they're doing because it's not that common. And the treatments to your point, so chemotherapy never works and that has to do with the ra rate of replication. The turnover is not super high, right? So that's one part. And then they tend to be radio resistant, although, we do use radiation at higher doses to kill those cells, right? And then as far as treatment, medical treatment, to your point, in general, we have these two groups, target therapy and then immunotherapy. And, and then you said most of the times target therapy includes drugs that block the vessels. So we call that angiogenic drugs, uh, anti-VHF. Um, we also use other target therapies that we use in other tumors. They're called mTOR inhibitors, uh, but those are, they have a limited role. So target therapies. And then the immunotherapies, as you said, is like the way we talk or we explain it is, you know, you know when you think of immunotherapy, the, the cancer cell tells our immune system, our good soldiers in the body, don't attack me because I'm a good guy. And then the soldiers in our body don't attack us. But then when you bring those drugs, those immunotherapy, they block that signal. So they allow our, our soldiers to look at the cancer cell, and even the cancer is trying to tell them, I'm good, I'm good, and attack me, the, 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 the good guys, the immune cells, are gonna still attack cancer. So they work indirectly. They don't act against the right. tumor. They help to boost our immune system against tumor, right? So we have those two class of agents, I guess. How does that work at the molecular type? You know, it does look like we have, or we tend to have an angiogenic profile uh, meaning tumors that are more sensitive to endogenic drugs. And we kind of have like these tumors who tend to respond better to immunotherapy drugs. But there's a big group in the middle, which, you know, if we, talk, we start talking about gene expression signatures, it gets a little bit complicated, where tumors are, don't seem to be responsive to one or the other. And that's when we start to combine them and try the other stuff. And, and, but in general, we've been playing around with these kind of agents for you know, target therapies for like over 15 years now and immunotherapy for like seven, eight years now uh, with, with success, but that's a lot to be done still. Yeah, and I think a part of that is that you touched on is like it gets complicated, but when we talk about histopathology and just saying, okay, this is what it is on a, you know, I don't want to say macroscopic, it's still microscopic, but it's with the eyeball or whatever you're looking, 
if you could, if we could figure out really the blueprints of saying, okay, these are the properties that help propagate or grow these tumors, and these are the ones that like are maybe escape mechanisms. That's when you could really just have a much better ID, right, on kind of like what the whole pathogenesis is, and maybe to tailor. That's the concept of precision medicine. What can I do to tailor it, not for just the fact that you have a standard renal cell carcinoma, even if it's clear cell or not, but also what does yours look like? And that's where you go into the sequencing concept and saying like, let's look at the real factors, the expressions. What isn't being expressed that are our normal cells? What are being expressed? And that's where you know you're studying, and I think we're just getting started really on that kind of piece of it. So that's an important one. And, and that's something that anyone listening should say, hey, I, I think you know it's important, you know, even though you're probably gonna see one of those either way, but to just know that stuff is on the horizon and that one matters more than the other. Which one, so what's the difference between good risk and bad risk? So just to expand on that a bit, you know, before talking about the risk, you're right. So the way we did this, you know, we, we, we group, we lump a bunch of tumors, hundreds and hundreds of cases, and we went through what we call pathology uh, features, right, or pathologic features. And, you know, basically you took things like nuclear grade, right, or, you know, size of the tumor, or whether or not it involves the lymph nodes at the time of surgery, right, things of that nature. And then we ran these complicated, you know, stats analysis, like multivariate analysis, and you come up with scores to predict outcomes. So that is prognostic, right? So that's one piece. And that's mainly done in the non-metastatic space. In other words, for patients who do not have stage four, right? They have limited or confined disease to the kidney or kidney close by with lymph nodes or even invading the, the, the tissue, the, the fat tissue that surrounds the kidney, right? So that's for prognostic purposes. And then in the metastatic space, meaning cancer that left the kidney and went to other places in the body, then we came up from the target therapy era, so about, you know, let's say 15 years ago, we kind of did the same exercise. We lumped all these tumors together, and we kind of tried to look at features who could predict outcomes, right? And then you have the good risk, the intermediate and poor risk, and that's for stage four disease. And it takes things like how good the patient looks like, or, you know, does he have anemia? Does he have other um, laboratory abnormalities? Does he need treatment right away? Or can he wait more than a year to treatment? So you basically points to all those factors. And with that, you have a, a score. And the good, intermediate, and poor risk is basically a way for us to predict outcomes for that patient. Now, you know, with that said... The only thing I don't love about that, and maybe I'm this ignorant, but... It's actually, depending on what profile, you, like just not profile, not like in that category, that dictates what you can and can't use. And that, that risk factor is really independent or prior to the actual therapy. So you're more just going on like kind of the things, the variables that you see. You don't know if they're anemic for this reason or that. And so that's the one thing that doesn't sit, I guess, like I wish I understood better on like how come that dictates alone what NCCN allows me to use and not use. So let me address that because it's a really good point, right, Sanjay? You know, like for now, we have two general scores, right? The IMDC and then the Memorial Sloan Cannery scores. And most of us tend to use IMDC these days. But there's a couple of limitations. That's definitely one of them. You do the score up front and, you know, for you, it's either zero or 100%. Other treatment works or it doesn't work, or you do great or you don't. Right. Um, but, but another important limitation is these, these scores were developed uh, prior to the emergence of immunotherapies. So in other words, actually, we don't know whether or not the, the prognostic scores, you being an intermediate risk, pre-immunotherapy applies to patients who are getting now these days an immunotherapy-based treatment. And that's really an important limitation because the, our ability to predict outcomes, it's not there. 
And in addition to that, about the, you know, the limitation, I mean, of course, as we do more of this, we, we, we go beyond and we, I guess, we understand more the limitations and we not completely follow those restrictions. I'll give an example. Ipilimumab and nivolumab, two immunotherapy agents, are approved for patients with intermediate and poor risk. Why? Because when we designed the trial, the end point, the objective of the trial was to check what was going on for patients with intermediate and poor risk. We did include patients with good risk, and because those patients did so well, stuff like time to progression or progression-free survival was no difference when we reported it, and so the approval was for intermediate and poor risk. Does that mean that Impinivo, does, that combination, does not work for a good risk? That's not the case. Actually, it does work. If you look at the complete responses, it's, you have double digits there. You have about 12% or so people getting Impinivo, good risk, tumor goes away. Right. So, but this is too much detailed information. Now, now, have I used it in good risk? Absolutely. Now, but, it, but this is, requires, I guess, knowing the data so well that it's very difficult when we're treating you know, kidney cancer now and then bladder and then breast and then lymphoma and then lung and then get back to kidney. It, it's harder to go to know all these nuances. So it's our job as academic researchers, right, to figure it out exactly who benefits from what and then we perhaps will go from this score, the IMDC or Memorial, we expand it beyond the clinical and the lab results to include stuff like, to your point, molecular profiling. So not only we look at the patient, we get these labs, but now we're gonna start getting sequencing the tumor, getting certain features and start saying, oh boy, you know, in addition to these three or four, score, four factors that we see in the labs, and in just by looking at the patient, we now are adding a couple of one, a couple of more uh, genomic alterations that helps us to predict fairly well what is going to happen with whatever treatment we choose. Right. I think we're getting that area, and I think you know we're going to have great news on that regard in the near future. I mean, you're getting us there. That's why you're there. That's why you're manning. You know, that's why you're manning this GU oncology research. Because the way I see it is like, yeah, you could say North America. You have like North America. You have Canada, U.S., and Mexico. Like it's just. Okay, fine, Central America-ish. But, like, you know, that that is a very macro, just kind of category way. But obviously, us Southerners know we're just better people. Just kidding. The Midwestern, but different and everything else. So, like, you can really, you want to believe that there's a more isolation than just saying he behaves that way because he's America. No, he behaves that way because he's Southern. And he behaves that way because he's from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So, you know, and that's where we're talking about getting the details on really the idiosyncrasies. Oh, wait, he's actually Indian in Baton Rouge. So now all of a sudden that adds a different characteristic. And then those are the kind of things with precision and molecular therapy that hopefully will say this is a better understanding of the pathogenesis. So that was very helpful. And I'm going to change it up on you entirely because you're a man that just adapts, can do anything. Throw me the ball, coach. BRCA is generally thought about right, with breast cancer and, and, and ovarian stuff and, and all this. But people forget, I think, outside of the oncology space, how relevant BRCA is to prostate cancer. And there's two things that I want to be able to touch on, whichever excites you more. Let's, let's go with it. There's the BRCA concept and what, what, what does that mean for prostate cancer? How does it even play out a role? Why is it relevant? The other part is the, this, this concept of, and maybe this is a little looser concept, but like MSI high or not. And so MSI high is when we talk about microsatellite instability, right? Can your stuff repair things that are going awry in mutations, you know, cancer well enough? And if they're not, then generally those are more like, you know, uh, of an Achilles to like immunotherapies and Achilles to things that are either MSI high because they have like uh, their mismatch repair proteins basically make them more suitable to possibly, you know, intervention or recognition if you're to unveil that cloak, like you said, or if you let the good guys all of a sudden see it. 
Which one do you want to tackle? MSI high, really what it means, are people born with MSI high? Is it something that happens like through your lifetime? And then BRCA we know is inherited. That's how people think about it. But obviously it is also relevant in the sense of, and there's a previous podcast talking about all this, the difference between inherited and somatic. Somatic meaning one of those mutational errors made that mutation, inherited meaning you were born with it. That's your two options, sir, at dinner. Which one do you like? Right. So we can do both. You know, it's fairly simple to do it, you know, so because it's great work out there who makes our life easy. So the, my way to explain what you just said, right, we do two types of genetic testing. One is the genes we were born with from your mommy and daddy. That's germline. The other thing is what's going on at the tumor level. That's called somatic, right? Okay. So actually for both BRCA and, and, and uh, microsatellite instability, you know, it's, it's, microsatellite instability is, is, is related to a mismatch repair. Okay, so get, let's get the BRCA first, and then we can address MSI, MMR. So BRCA is part, part of a family of genes who, who have the function of fixing the bugs that we have at the DNA level. So you have the DNA inside the cells, right? And what happens is that one cell becomes two, two become four, so there's this replication going on, and inside the nucleus, the DNA needs to replicate, right? It becomes two. So as the more you have, uh, you know, cell, the cell cycles going on, is, is the more you have cell replication, the more bugs you can acquire. We call that mutations. We can, there are different types of it. So you have bugs. You have mistakes in the sequencing. Because remember, the DNA is a sequencing of letters, right, known as nucleotides. So when you have those mistakes, the DNA repair gene family, if you will, that includes BRCA, but not just BRCA, ATM, CDK12, FANCA, RAT51, PALB2, you know, PALB keep going on. They are, have the ability to have these proteins. They code for proteins called PARP who go after those errors and they fix, fix them, them, right? They fix the bugs. Okay. Why is that important? Well, because when you have a mutation in this gene, and BRCA is, is a classical example, that means that you do not have the ability to fix those bugs. So what that means is cells will will take those bugs with them. So what that means is more likely they're going to find, you're going to have cells who are going to get, going to lose control and going to be start, uh, you know, proliferating without control. They'll lose control. They'll go crazy. And that's actually cancer, right? Cancer is basically cells replicating in a fast mode without control. So, so that's one part. So how do we get from, from finding out about this to do something about well, it? Well, I was going to so, say, well, sorry, maybe you're, you're getting to that. It get, there's this sweet spot though with cells where you have enough errors to where it's favorable, but then also yeah. you need to kind of pack in or control the errors to a degree so that you don't get destroyed or, or, or are unable to sustain yourself, right? Correct. And that's what Correct. is doing. It's trying to fix it yeah. just enough to be able to survive, but allow, it's like, it's like a permissive amount of errors to where it's still able to exist, but be really frenetic and crazy. Right, so another way to look at that is in general, you don't develop cancer by being born with one mutation. Although you know that having that mutation leads to cancer. Right. What that means is, you know, your cells are resistant and they have to pick up a couple of mutations, right? We can talk about double hit, etc., where you actually have one after the other and, and you basically mess up with the structural system of the cell that then allows the cell to actually lose control and becomes cancerous, right? Cancer cell, right? So BRCA is one of the most common type of DNA repair uh, family and mutations in the BRCA are really important, right? So you have 
you basically can warn with them germline defects or you can pick them up over time with your life during your lifetime and that's somatic alterations right so in prostate cancer BRCA2 of 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 all DNA repair defects which happens in general for patients with advanced prostate cancer we're talking roughly between 20 to 30 percent of those around 10 to 12 percent are germline so you're basically saying a third will have it will have an alteration in one of those uh, of the genes part of that family a third of those will be BRCA, mainly BRCA2. BRCA1 is fairly uh, rare form. And, and, and when you're born with that alteration, you can pick up cancers like ovarian or, you know, or breast or prostate cancer. So one of the things we do when we see patients with prostate cancer is we actually talk about germline testing in our clinics. We're going to find out if there's a problem about that gene not only that's only the only gene we test but that's one of the genes we test and the reason why we do it we do it twofold because we can do what we call cascade testing so if you have the germ if you were born with that mutation we can go after your siblings we can go after your parents you can go after your kids to find out if they also have it so that's one part of the story the, and they'll do education genetic counseling about it right the second part of the story is we also do it because we can do something about it and here's the interesting piece so BRCA mutated tumors tend to confer a poor prognosis. In other words, they are badass. They, be, they, they misbehave, right? They, they don't behave the normal way. However, they are also predictive of response to certain therapies. Why? Well, because if BRCA leads to, to those proteins who fix those bugs, if you have a problem getting those enzymes, those proteins who fix the bugs, if you knock out the other protein, because remember, we have two alleles, right, for each gene, if you knock out the other one, then out of the sudden you cannot fix those problems. So what's interesting about it is then the cells will be more vulnerable and they will die sooner. So by offering a drug that blocks those PARPs, we're allowing the cancer cell to be more vulnerable and die. And so it's poor prognostic factor, but it's a good predictive uh, factor in the sense that if you offer a PARP inhibitor, which is drugs like, you know, Olaparib, Rucaparib, Niraparib, that, we, that are approved, by the way, you know, in, in breast, ovarian, pancreas, prostate, you are able to control the cancer. You don't, you don't cure people with target therapy. We're allowed to control cancer for a long period of time. So that's the beauty about the prognostic versus predictive, right? So that's the BRCA story. It's a good point because that's, that's why I think of it as this permissive errors because, like, the BRCA, like, to help, you know, it affects the dual cross-linking. And then PARP is like this kind of band-aid that in a single chain can fix it. So it permits a certain amount of errors while not too much that the balloon pops. Like when you're playing like water balloon thing with your friends, you want to fill up that balloon maximally without, if you fill it up too much, then all of a sudden it pops and you don't have a balloon. So the way you do that is BRCA allows it to be big and juicy with water, but then that PARP kind of keeps it from exploding. When you neutralize that, then those errors are basically counterproductive because you fix the ability to at least keep it, like, you know, alive. And that's it's such an interesting concept. And a lot of things work like that, right? Small cell is very aggressive. High-grade lymphomas are very aggressive. But the thing I always tell my patients is, but they can re that also means the silver lining is you have a much better chance of having a rapid response and, 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 and shrink it down for different reasons in this case. But usually things that are bad prognostic, if you didn't know about it, could sometimes be exploited and actually be the very Achilles heel that, you know, make it go away, which is neat. Platinum sensitivity with small cell, for example. That's super interesting. And that's, so now everyone hopefully understands and appreciates why BRCA causes multiple tumor types if it's germline. But it sounds like it's only like 15, 20 percent, you said. 
So it's less than that for germline. Yeah. In, in prostate cancer, at least, is around 12%. BRAC is a third of that. So, you know, so if you quote about four or five percent in general, you're probably right. Yeah. Awesome. So if one thing we haven't hit head on in any of the podcasts, we've always touched on it, even with melanoma specialist Keith Flaherty and everything. We talked a ton about PD-1, PD-L1 and CTLA-4. But when we talk about MSI high specifically, like prostate was one of the first things I remember in fellowship to say we got to see if he's MSI high. Right. And it was a newer concept. And that, and that was one of the you know, first things that my 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 staff told me. How does MSI, I think everyone knows if you've seen the previous podcast on PD-1, PD-1, immunotherapy, but how do, what does MSI high mean exactly and how, why is prostate the one that really was described at first relating to it? So when we talk about MSI high and you Google about it, you, what you're going to find nine out of 10 times, you find MSI definition and then we talk right away about mismatch repair, MMR. So first MSI, so microsatellite, so it stands for microsatellite instability. So microsatellites are actually regions of repeated DNA that change in the length. And by in that changing length means it shows instability, right? So in that it happens when the mismatch repair, the MMR, is actually not working the way the way it should be working. So mismatch repair happens when you have new DNA and the job is actually to remove and replace these mispair uh, bases, those that are not you know fixed during proofreading, if you will. So what that means is, you know, the mismatch repair is also that ability to fix those bugs. It's just the different bugs that we're talking about, right? So, again, you can have mismatch repair. You can born with it, and that's called Lynch syndrome, or you can acquire that over time. And most of the times, when you have a mismatch repair deficient, you tend to have microsatellite instability. So the reason why it's important because, but you can acquire MSI high over time as well. We've shown that actually. So in prostate cancer, because that's what you asked me, you expect only about two to 3% of times to have high MSI high, right? So the reason why it's important is because, you know, immunotherapy, where we talk about immune checkpoint inhibitors, right? Um, <clears throat> you know, it was the first, immunotherapy uh, got the first tumor agnostic approval which that means is for MSI high tumors. In other words is, I don't care if you have lung cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, head and neck cancer, as long as you have MSI high, you're far more likely to respond to immune checkpoint inhibition, like pembrolizumab, nivolumab, et cetera. And so that in prostate cancer- point on any podcast, we haven't said that. And you are the man, I knew you'd be the man to say it. I've talked <laughs> once about NTRAC and tissue agnostic targeted therapy, because that's an actual target, yeah. NTRK doesn't matter the tumor type. How crazy. I don't know why more people don't talk about it in the news media and everything. But you nailed it. The first one where you could say, we have a tool that it doesn't matter the histopath as it relates to where it's from. If anyone is listening to this and their family members or them or anyone has cancer and you're running out of options or, you're, or things are thin or you don't have options or chemo's hard, you have got to check. This is applicable to any of you. You check to see if you're MSI high. Why? because it doesn't matter where the cancer is from, and it's because of the pathogenesis, which is somewhat complicated, but that means you're likely to have a good response to just unveil, stop the stop signs, and have your immune system kill it. And that's huge. And of course, Pedro is gonna be the one that does it, and I'm so excited. It, it's huge for a lot of reasons, right? You know, it's huge because it's not 0%, even in prostate cancer. You know, I have, I've seen five or six cases MSI prostate cancer in my life which if you do the math, right, you know, you need to test about 100 to find your one or two people, right? So you need to test quite a lot. 
and genetic testing was not standard of care. It's actually, you know, genetic testing right now is being used in under 40% of tumors. Uh, and that gives you an idea how low that is, right? It should, you know, in my opinion, should be close to 100%. Yes. So for, for, state, for advanced cancer. I mean, that would be the way and to do it. That's standard of care, yeah. Yeah. And we're going to get there, but we're just not there yet. And, and so that's one part. The, the second one is, you know, we actually didn't have a lot of data in prostate cancer. So when we got the papers, the New England paper, um, you know, they basically tested 42 patients, right, different tumor types, um, and they basically got the FDA approved that drug, it was Prembrolizumab, it was 2015 paper, and approved that drug because the response rates were high for any tumor who had expressed MSI high. Yeah. What is interesting is on that cohort, there was only two prostate cancer patients in there. I don't know if you knew that. One had a stable disease, and another one had partial response to therapy. So based on that, we, had, we then have data from Memorial Sloan Kettering. They put together 11 patients with MSI high based on tissue, and they offered Pembro to those patients, and responses were around 50%. And we did the same thing using liquid biopsy, not tissue, but liquid biopsy, and our response rate was around 50%. So in reality, you know, and we all have the success cases uh, of patients who came to me, you know, I, I have this walking miracle, came to me, you know, post uh, chemotherapy, post all treatments you can imagine. I offered him a trial. I knew he was MSI high. I got him on immunotherapy. And guess what? He came to me pre-hospice, right? And two years later, we did two years of immunotherapy. He, he got in remission. Uh, cancer disappeared. He had liver mats, cord compression, everything you can imagine. And uh, he's actually free of cancer today, free of treatment. Uh, a year and a half later. And that's an so that's the power yeah. of immunotherapy for these patients, if right? So it's a miracle you, case. Yes, immunotherapy is the one where you get these cases that somehow that good guy system, that infantry, that the 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 you know marines that were able to spot it. Conceivably, I always say this in my room. I'm like, I cannot tell you this is an expectation by any means, or or should be, but there are cases where they are able to be extinguished because remember. You know, my parents always told me with Eastern philosophy, everything's back to like the way celestial will made it or whatever's right, right? Whatever's the most natural is the way to go. That is the way our natural beings have like come to evolution. Our immune system takes care of us. I would say we're ingrates because we don't realize these mutations we're talking about, they're not happening at the time of cancer. Our bodies, everyone listening to this has had a ton of mutations in your colon and everywhere else. And these repair all these fail stops that us in all of our, you know, in ungrateful like presences sitting here and I'm joking, but, but they've been protecting us this whole time. And so that's where you're rewriting the script to say, hey, let the body do what it do. Like the thing that originally it ever like did, that's what you're enabling by allowing your immune system better than any of these targets and everything that we have. So that's huge. What is the thing that you're the most excited to talk about or that we should get excited about when it relates to your entire field of GU? Well, I mean, that's a thoughtful question and a loaded one as well, right? Same time. I, I really think that, you know, I think there are two messages in cancer. Unfortunately, we don't cure everybody yet, right? And I think that's an important message. We're doing everything we can to cure people. We're curing more people. But um, I see mainly cases where patients come to us with advanced disease, right? And so I, I would highlight uh, two messages, right? One, we're talking about it, is genomics. 
is moving from looking at the cancer under the microscope and understanding what we cannot see and understanding the genetics, right? We sequence the tumor, we do what we call molecular profiling, so we have a profile of that tumor that even though it's kidney cancer, right, we can have 100 kidney cancers all different because the molecular profiling is different. So we're starting knowing a lot more about that and running studies uh, you know, to kind of match different molecular profiling to different treatments. So that the message about genetic tests, testing is super, super important. And so I would highlight that as something, a take-home message, right? Please, you know, out there, you know, if you have someone, a family member or, or, or yourself going through cancer, I think it's really important to talk to your healthcare team about do I need, you know, do I need uh, genetic testing? And if so, which one would we do? and do, can we do something about it? And the answer to those questions should be provided to you and you really should advocate for that. That's huge and it's changing the way we're treating GU cancers and actually all cancers in general. So that's one. The second one is, you know, I, I, I really think that we don't cure people with stage four disease, although there are a few exceptions, but that should not be a reasonable expectation because we, with the therapies of the present. We know that, right? We test them, we do studies about it, we know what the outcomes are. But we, there's always the first. You know, if we have a treatment out there, right, who has not been tested yet or is being now tested but people have not put their hands on it, you don't know if this is going to be the treatment that's going to actually cure you. So the only way to do that is actually through clinical trials. So clinical trials is not you being a guinea pig, is actually a way for us to test in a safely in a safely manner novel therapies that are thoughtfully thought of, they were thoughtfully developed, and we, we offer those to patients. And the results on patients on clinical trial, even if they are getting the same treatments that outside trials, patients do better mm -hmm. because doctors are more on top of it. They do scans on time. They see them on time. They appreciate progression earlier on. Patients do better regardless. So the way I summarize clinical trials is the way to access the medicine of the future. Yeah. And who doesn't want to be treated with the medicine of the future, right? right. So the way to do that is through clinical trials. So I would highlight, uh, Sanjay, the importance of clinical trials to treat uh, cancer and the importance of genetic testing to allow molecular profiling and allow us to be smarter. And when we get our smarter, patients are better treated. Love it. And you're, you know, you're, all, you're full of class and you're a gentleman. And you said you should talk to your doctor and ask. I'll just tell you straightforward. You do that. If you're stage four, you should ask your doctor straight up, where's my sequencing? Where's my profiling? Where's my like genomic sequencing? Because you don't know if a trial is applicable unless you know what your sequencing is. And then me including, and I pride myself on being like, you know, abreast for a community oncologist, don't know a ton of stuff that's out there. I will only know it if I sequence your stuff to know that you even have something that's being investigated. So everyone deserves sequencing and, and, and soon it'll be standardized that everyone qualifies with insurance without question for sequencing in the stage four setting. The second thing is, Greg Simon, we had on this podcast, Obama's administration hired him as the first uh, executive director of Cancer Moonshot, and he said something, exactly what you said, and I always said it the way you said it, and he said it a little differently, which is the same thing, but he said clinical trials are not experiments. They used to be experiments, yes. Like back in the day, like when you're doing chemo, you're like, well, you know, do they stay alive or not? Now, clinical trials should be synonymous with treatments. 
Clinical trial, you should think this is a treatment option for me. You don't think this is an experiment for me. It's a treatment option because they are treatments. A lot of times they reflect on something we already know about other tumor types or mechanisms that we're already using that's more novel and precise. So that message is very salient and something that's so true. That's why people with trials live along, you know, do better, exactly as you said. And that's why I didn't even give you the backstory, Petra. That's why I'm so passionate about XCures in this podcast. XCures funds this podcast to get people educated. And what they do is they literally, it's free for patients. They, anyone can go on if you have you know, any of those companies that have sequencing for free. They populate it and they run it through all of it. They run it through all the trials that are in academics, in, in biopharma, in startups, and whatever else. And it, they empower you to think these are all the clinically relevant. This is where there's any research out on new mutations. And you know, a lot of companies do that, but a lot of times you're like, this makes no sense in this, in this setting. And so that's what we're working hard on. I'm working with them. I'm not employed by them. And I usually don't talk about it on a podcast, actually, even the company. But it's neat because... The whole purpose is to say, how can we get enable people in the middle of nowhere in communities and stuff, or not, just having is, uh, tra tra issues traveling or that kind of center, how do we get them enrolled in trials? And that's what, you know, that's where that, all this came from. And this is the first time I mentioned in multiple episodes, and I feel bad about that, but it's important. Pedro, thank you so much, so, so, so much for being here. Always inspired by your work. Can't wait to follow up more. Uh, where can people, I don't think you do much social media, but you are on LinkedIn. Uh, where can people learn from you otherwise if they're not local? Well, I, I'm, I have a Twitter account. It's for work purpose. So in other words, you know, it's where we actually we get all the news and we basically retweet and we bring up to light important news in the GU world, right? So I focus mainly on, you know, prosecuting and bladder. So I do tweet quite a bit, but it's really for GU tumors, right? So it's your work. No, it's I use it as a work resource. Yeah, so, you know, so I, I can share with you is, is, is at, at uh, P. Barata MD. You know, Barata is my last name. So P. Barata MD. Uh, you know, and, and uh, there's a big GU community and that's where we bring news for patients and we discuss data, we discuss, you know, meetings and, and, and resources. So it's a, it's a helpful resource. Uh, you know, outside that, obviously, you know, my email and my information is on Case Western uh, University Hospital Sideman Cancer Center. Um, and, 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 you know, I'm happy to help anytime. Oh, it is a pleasure to be here, by the way, Sanjay. This is great. Brilliant. I, I have to find some way to see you again when you left us down, down in Louisiana, but I, you're doing amazing things. So thank you. Oh.